That's some good stuff this morning. I want to remind you as we get started about your gospel engagements. I just thinking about a couple of kind of the cool things that happened with that this week. Uh, first of all, let me remind you there's four ways that you can kind of keep up with your gospel engagements. One is through the website, so you can do that mobily or from desktop or something like that. JudsonBaptist.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and you'll see the gospel engagements tab. You can also go out here to the iPad directly behind this wall and log in a gospel engagement there. Uh, you can text it in. There's a number somewhere, I don't know, uh, that you can do that. That's, that's too fancy for me. Or you can uh, report that in your Sunday school class as well. But I remind you to do that. Uh, this past week, a couple of our senior adults, one of them came to me and said, do you remember that you encouraged us to write some letters? And I said, I do. And she said, you know, I did that. I got to thinking about some, some nephews that I had that didn't grow up with any gospel influence in their life. And I wrote them a letter explaining the gospel. Is that a gospel engagement? Yes. Yes, that's a gospel engagement. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged as well this week. Uh, Pastor Jack was telling me that he was having a gospel engagement with a guy. And the guy said, now, where did you say that church is? And he said, well, it's Judson Baptist. He said, you know, somebody was in here last week was telling me about that church. Uh, doing kind of the same thing. And so uh, keep up with that, you know, whether it's just uh, through a track. And, you know, this week I had an opportunity to leave a track with someone, had another opportunity just to engage with someone, found out he's a believer and serving the Lord in a church uh, in Murfreesboro, just doing some great stuff over there. And it's always encouraging when that happens. So I just remind you of that. Uh, I hope today that, uh, like me, you're able to say thank you and be grateful for the mother's influence in your life and grandmothers and things like that. And I thought it would be fitting that we start today with a uh, look at the family. And we're going to spend three weeks looking at the family. And so today we're going to be looking at God's design for the family and whether that's intentional or haphazard. I think most people approach family kind of haphazardly, but God has an intentional plan for us when we talk about family. And I want us to look back at the very beginning of how God designed family. And then we'll go uh, next week into what it looks like for a husband and wife to be in relationship to one another and how that's a picture of Christ in the church. And the following week, we'll look at the role of children and how that works out in all of, their, in all of our lives. And it might be tempting for you to think that this would be a great sermon for you to just kind of tune out. You know, you say, well, I'm not married. Well, that's all right. You've been part of a family, and you may be part of a family. Or you say, well, I'm widowed, you know, but that's okay, you, you're shaping a family, or I'm single again, it's okay, uh, you're going to be shaping a family. I want you to hang with me this morning, because right now, one of the things that we see in our country is the definition of family is up for grabs, and because we don't know what it is anymore, it makes it very hard to know when we're successful, right? If, if, you're, if you're unsure about what a family is, and, and I would define it like this, uh, you know, what we would say is that God's design for the family wasn't on accident, he designed a family to be one man and one woman together for the rest of their lives. That's it. I mean, it, it's really simple when you look at it that way. But here's what happened. Uh, when the Supreme Court ruled that a family could be anything that you wanted it to be, it really changed the definition of a 6,000-year-old definition of family. And what it did is it offered more confusion. So what we're not going to do today is talk about what we're, I don't believe a family should be. That's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what we see from Scripture a family really is. And so that's going to be kind of our primary focus because we could always say about a lot of things in our country, there are things that are legal that I don't agree with as a Christian. I mean, they're just things that are legal. You want to talk about abortion. I, I, it's a law, and I get that. 
It's a law of our land. But as a believer, I can't support it. I'm not going to do that. So there are a lot of things in our lives that we say about our country that may be legal that we wouldn't say are God's best for us. And in fact, sometimes we would even say that they're immoral. But what troubles me, I think, the most is that I see people entering into relationships and maybe even those who are especially part of a church and they have no clue about how to start their family and what to base it on because in this day and age, they may not have ever seen biblical marriage, biblical family modeled by anyone. And so what happens is if you take people with their own ideas about family and try to get them to somehow mix together, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think that's going to work out if we don't use the scripture as our basis? So what we begin to see is that when you've never seen biblical marriage modeled, you end up with well-intentioned people who aren't sure how to relate to one another in a family environment. You start to see spouses drift apart. You see parents that don't know how to parent children. You see children that don't understand the role of their parents or their own role in being good children. So let me lay out a few assumptions for us this morning. I'm just going to assume, and maybe wrongly, but I'm going to assume that if you're here, you didn't wake up this morning trying to figure out how to wreck your family. Okay? I'm going to assume that if you're here, you're not thinking, how can I ruin my children? I'm going to assume that if you're a child here this morning, you're not hoping that you can just be as difficult as possible for your parents. I think that if we're here this morning, what we would say is that, I mean, the reason we're here is because we want to try to get it right. I mean, right? I think that I feel like that's a safe assumption. If it's not, you're excused, all right? But I think that that's a safe assumption for us. But what happens is if we don't understand the roles that God's given for a family, it makes things really difficult. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of, the, of Genesis. It's the first book in all of the scripture. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And as you turn there, I want to remind you of what's actually just taken place in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a statement of the totality of all of the creation that God made. Now, when we think about that, that's everything that you could think about. It's everything that you could see. It's all the galaxies that are being discovered right now. It's all the planets and all of their moons. It's all of those things at once. God has created all of those things. Even the little microorganisms that exist on the earth, God made them. And what we have to understand is that I fully affirm the creation story as being this, God was the creator. Now, I understand that that puts us into a little bit of conflict with the world again, doesn't it? Uh, But I think you're going to see a pattern, right? If you're trying to live for Christ, there's going to be conflict with the world because the world wants to do things their way and we feel like we're under compulsion to live for Jesus Christ and live under God's authority in the way that he tells us to, right? So what you have right now, and, and I understand this, and maybe you would believe this, and I don't hold it against you, but a lot of people would say, you're, you're disallowing all that science has proven, a theory. I know, but if it's a theory, it's actually proven in science. Really? Well, that's a fascinating way to look at it. And I understand, for years, believers have been told, you guys are antiquated in your thinking. No one believes that God created the heavens and the earth. I get that, but no one believes Jesus Christ rose from the dead anyway, so why are we worried about it? Why, why should that be the basis of it, right? So when we say that, it's funny, though, and I just remind you of this. 
When we talk about these things, I don't believe that scripture and science are in conflict. I had someone ask me one time, said, you don't believe in evolutionary theory, but do you believe that you'd go to a doctor if you had cancer? Yes. I don't see how the two relate. Right? They're not in conflict. When we study the scripture, it's, it's not in conflict. But at the same time, understand this. What's happening now is that we're being told you absolutely have to believe script. I mean, you have to believe science when it talks about creation. Forget everything that the scripture says. But now we also want you to forget everything science has said about what it means to be a man and a woman. All gender is fluid. It doesn't matter. I mean, I hate to tell you this. And if if you're out of the loop on this, this is there are differences between men and women. And like. I mean, I hate to use science. I mean, but science proves that down to the very microscopic makeup of our genetic code. But yet we're told, forget all that. So what I want you to get through our our minds this morning is that if we abandon the scripture on the issue of our origin, we really have no basis for the principles about which we build our families because God designed that just like he designed this world to operate in its seasons and all of its journey. So it comes down to this. Who are you going to trust this morning? God, who was there when it all happened. Yourself, science, someone else. I can only go back to what the scripture says for us. So let's look at Genesis 2 and verse 15 and see what the Lord says about families. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone and I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to the beasts of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, Then the Lord God fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When God finished making the garden of Eden, He placed Adam in the garden. Adam was created by God, and he was created for God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Everything that has been created was created on purpose for someone. Think about it like this. If you were going to create something, if you were going to build something, you don't build it just to be there. You build it for a specific purpose. So if I built a chair, which would be a scary proposition, if I built a chair for you this morning, It would be for you to do something with, to sit in, right? Or it would be for me to sit in. The object has a purpose for which it's built. It's built for someone on purpose by someone. So God created Adam to be in relationship with him, and he was given a purpose. He was given a purpose 
to work. And I would just say this this morning, it always makes me nervous when you find people who are doing their dead level best to find ways not to work. You're created to work. And I hate to break this to you, but in heaven, you're actually going to be busy. You're going to be working in the new heaven and the new earth. There's things for us to do there. And so Adam was created for God on purpose by God to be in relationship with God and to cultivate, tend this garden. And what we begin to see is that Adam had some boundaries on his life. In verse 17, we see that Adam was told, you can eat of everything that's been created, but there's one thing I don't want you to ever touch, Adam, because when you do that, there's going to be a stiff penalty, and the penalty is death. Now, what's interesting about this is the scripture confirms for us that death entered the world through one man because sin entered the world through one man and was passed down to us. And so we begin to understand that these boundaries that God set up were real, And I have to just say this to you this morning and and to me as a reminder. If you're a person who doesn't think authority matters, you're in trouble. Because God has placed authority all around us. And you can kick against it your entire life and you will suffer for it. Because God places boundaries on our lives. Verse 18 marks a shift in the creation story as we begin to see it. If you notice all throughout chapter 1, we've heard about God making day and night and light and darkness and water and plants and animals and earth and all of these things. And after each one of those things, God qualifies everything that he makes by saying it was good. But now when he looks at Adam and he sees that there's not a suitable helper for Adam, he says something that stands out in stark contrast for us. He says it's not good. Something isn't right. Adam doesn't have anyone to relate to. He's been tasked with cultivating, keeping the garden. He's got a mission. He's got a purpose. But there's something missing in his life. I want to come back to this word suitable in a second, but I need to say something about these animals because it's a fascinating thing that, that God has done here. And I hope that you love animals, by the way. I've had a dog. I miss him terribly. He was fantastic. Uh, love the way that when you came home in the afternoon, didn't matter what kind of day you had, the dog was the exact same. You know, he didn't care if it had been a great day at work or a bad day at work or if you were in a good I mean, The dog's the same. I, I love that about the animal. But I want to just remind you, it's not the same thing as hanging out with a wife or a child or a friend. Another, I mean, I know this is hard for some of you, but it's not the same. But, but here's why. This is really important. Listen to what Arnold Toynbee said. He says that it's possible for a man and dog to have a great fellowship. They can spend many enjoyable hours together. They can play games. They can show and share affection. But here's the crux of the issue. The fellowship has to be on the dog's level. Some of you are like, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But you understand the difference, right? I mean, that's the difference between an animal and a human. And the reason is, is because Adam had been given something that all the animals didn't have. He'd been given the very image of God. He had something to relate to God with, a spirit, a soul that would relate to God. I mean, we're not talking about personality. Animals have personalities. It's fascinating to watch the personality of an animal. But there's something missing in Adam's life that can't be fulfilled by things or an animal. So let's get back to this word suitable. It's found in verse 18. It's also found in verse 20, after all the animals had been named. This word just means compatible. It literally, the definition of it means to be forward-facing each other. 
So what he's saying is that you're looking down at an animal, right? It, it, it's something that's different. It's not something that's compatible. But God did something amazing to make something that was compatible for Adam. He made Eve out of a bone from Adam's side. He took what he had made and he made something else that corresponded perfectly. Corresponded perfectly to the man. When Adam woke up, he must have been over the moon. He must have been unbelievably excited because God had provided something that met him perfectly exactly where he was. Just like him, she was an image bearer of God. She had a soul that could know and to love God. Anatomically, she corresponded to him as well. Now notice that I didn't say she was just like him. That's not corresponding. You don't build a marriage relationship on something that's exactly alike. It doesn't work. There's no corresponding nature to that. They're meant to correspond. It's something that was missing in Adam's life. If Adam wasn't missing something, Eve would never have been made. But he was missing something in his life. Something we don't think about is that these people were perfect. They were perfect. Could you imagine this? They had no flaws. Imagine the, the greatest picture of beauty that comes to your mind in another person. Now stop thinking about yourself. Think about the greatest picture of beauty that comes to your mind. And you have to understand, we don't even know what that is. Because we're so messed up in what we think beauty is. And if I could just give you a quick example of how beauty is such a moving target. Not only culturally, but let's just stay right here in my lifetime. In the ancient world, if a woman had a tan, right, that was bad. You read the Song of Solomon. What does it say? I, I don't want to look like I've been working out in the sun. She's saying, I don't want to look like I've been out doing work that the men should have been doing. I want to be, for my beloved, this kind of uh, person who doesn't have a sunburn, a suntan. When I was growing up, all the women went to tanning beds. Now we don't go to tanning beds because we're afraid of cancer. It's a moving target, isn't it? It's a real weird thing when we think about that. But what happened when Adam woke up from that sleep and he saw someone who corresponded to him perfectly she was perfectly beautiful. When she looked at Adam and saw who he was, he corresponded to her perfectly, and he was perfectly handsome in her eyes. And verse 20 tells us about the second word for Eve when it talks about suitable. It then says the word helper. And this word means one who assists or helps with what is needed. Adam was given a task by God. Do you remember what it was? He was to cultivate the garden, tend to the garden, name all the animals. It's, it's a big task that he's been given. And God said, you can't do it alone. You're not going to be able to accomplish this on your own. And there's not a helper for you. Having the oxen won't help you. Having a sheepdog won't help you, but so much. You've got to have someone who corresponds to you perfectly, who is a helper. By willingly living in godly submission to a husband, the wife begins to help the family accomplish its purpose. From the very beginning, what we're seeing is that God has a design. He has a plan for a marriage. Are, are you seeing what's going on here? So, men, if you don't understand that you've been given this godly task on earth, you're missing so much. 
You have a godly task that you've been given. God created you on purpose to fulfill his will on this earth. Now, part of that certainly means that some of your time is going to be spent working. You're going to create things. You're going to cultivate things. You're going to tend to things. Maybe you'll even name some things. Part of that means that you're going to be uh, working at home as well. You're going to be uh, building a marriage. You're going to be building a family. You're going to be building relationships with a wife, leading your family spiritually, maybe even raising children if God would allow that. But ladies, if equally, if you don't understand your purpose, everything else starts to run off course. If you understand that your role in the family is to help your husband help your husband fulfill this because he cannot do it on its own, it's impossible for him to do it on its own. God understood that two were better than one. Then you begin to realize there's something missing if you're not helping. He can't do it. Sometimes this may mean that you work inside the home. Sometimes it means that you work outside the home. Your greatest work, though, is fulfilling your role as a godly wife, helping your family and your husband. When God brought Eve to Adam, look at the words that take place in this first marriage ceremony. Verse 23, the man says, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Well, how do you treat your own body? Pretty well, right? I mean, like, I like clothes, I like food, I want a place to stay. That's what what Adam's saying. He looks over at this lady who corresponds to him perfectly, and he says, I'm going to treat her exactly how I treat myself. She's just like me. She came from me. This is an amazing thing that God has done. I want to take care of her like that. He's thinking about her needs just like he's thinking about his own. And only after this do we see this next admonition that the two leave their own families to start a family on their own. Notice what it says. The man leaves mother and father, takes a wife, and they become one. And then we begin to see this corresponding part of the physical relationship that takes place. Do you remember when we talked about these boundaries at the very beginning, how God had established boundaries for our lives? Well, there's some physical boundaries for our lives too. There's a part of a marriage relationship that doesn't happen until after you're married, folks. That's God's design. And when we're living outside of that, we're outside the boundaries of God. We're outside what's best. you, You can certainly do whatever you want as long as you understand that you have to be willing to pay the price. Because God's boundaries are set for us. So if we have this physical relationship outside of marriage, it's always wrong. Always wrong. Now all this seems pretty simple so far, doesn't it? And it is. It's so simple. Until flawed man meets flawed woman and they decide to get married. And guess what? That happens every time two people get married. Now, you may not be thinking that you're flawed this morning, but just ask the people that know you best. If they lie to you, come ask me. We're flawed. We're all flawed. There's no such thing as the perfect man, the perfect woman. I mean, when people start talking about this and and start talking about, you know, well, I'm I'm leaving this relationship because I'm going to find a perfect wife. Good luck. I've found the perfect man. No, you haven't. You haven't. It it can't be that way because two flawed people coming together 
bring baggage. It's just, the, it's just the nature of it, folks. You have it. I have it. We all have it. And so what we have to do is recognize where we're falling short and go back to the boundaries God has established for marriage and the purpose God has established for marriage. And when we discover the roles that God has for us and we begin to function in our lives in the roles that God has for us, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Now what happens most of the time is that when we're married, all of a sudden, we quickly discover the idea of headship for the man and helping for the woman to be very difficult to practice. It's just difficult. And so we find it hard to do the simplest things. We start asking questions like this. Who should take care of the money? The person who does it best. I mean, like, right? So if you're, if you're a man trying to lead your house, fulfill the purposes of God and and you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I need, to, I need to make sure that I take care of the money. But if, right, I mean, if, if you couldn't find a dollar because it just runs out, probably not you. If you're a wife and it's you that, that, that does it great, but if you can't do it, maybe the husband should. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. Did you catch that? That's not the design of God for a marriage is, is, is who likes to cook more or who takes care of the money or, or who cuts the grass. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is understanding a divine calling on our lives that God has placed you as a man with a will over your life for you to accomplish something on this earth for his kingdom on purpose designed by God and that you can't do it alone and a wife has to come alongside and help that has to come alongside and help that. So when God designed these roles, it understands for, I guess it becomes an understanding point for us that what we're not talking about here is a partnership. We're not talking about a partnership. The problem with partnerships is that they always start off great, except both of those partners are not always mutually interested in benefiting the other partner. It's kind of like this. I'm in a partnership and as long as this person makes my life better and I get to do what I want to do, this is a great partnership if we're all happy moving forward. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about understanding a divine calling. As we correspond to one another in marriage, we're trying to fulfill this divine calling. We're working together to be all that God wants us to be as we serve him. And if you're a husband who doesn't work to lead your family because you're lazy and it requires effort to be the spiritual head of your home, the one who says, we're going to church. If you abdicate that role and say, uh, well, you know, that's kind of more of the wife thing. She, she ought to be the one who does that. Really? Whose responsibility? Who was called to cultivate, tend, to keep you? Wife, if you see your role as anything but beyond helping that husband and that family be all they can be in Christ Jesus, you've missed it. You, you've missed everything that we're talking about here. But too many families, I think, are getting started with this idea that as long as we're attracted to one another and we enjoy being around one another, it'll be great. And what we begin to think about is that we start adding in these kids, these jobs, vacations, hobbies, houses, and that'll be enough. And we don't realize that we're missing so much. 
See, when you add all those things, that just adds another layer of complexity. It's a funny thing to me when people whose marriages aren't great say, we think we're going to have a kid to try to make things better. Kids make things something. <laughs> Easier? Maybe not. It's another layer of complexity. If you don't understand the basis for it, if you don't understand the beginning of it and God's design for it, then all of those things just muddy the water for us. We're not able to see clearly. We have to build our marriages on these godly principles or else we're setting ourselves up for failure. If you're married this morning or you're thinking about getting married this morning, you have to ask this question. How does this family relationship help me fulfill the purposes of God in my life? How does it? Husband, how, how are you fulfilling the purposes of God in your life by being a husband to a wife? Wife, how are you fulfilling the purposes of God by helping your family achieve all that God wants them to be. If you set the bar as, well, we're just going after the next vacation, the next toy we need to buy, the next thing, I mean, we've all missed it. Because it's not what it's about. See, you have to be intentional. Intentional in your role. If you're, if you're haphazard in this and you just hope it gets better, it doesn't work that way right? That's like staring at your grass and hoping it gets better. I hope it gets cut. I hope that we get rid of the weeds this year. I wish we could get those out of the flower, but somebody has to be intentional to go out and do something with that. You have to be intentional in your role as the head of the household. You have to be intentional in your role as the suitable helper to the husband God's given you. It doesn't work if you just haphazardly hope it all works out. You know why? Because it's hard. Hard to do. You bring intentionality to your own role. So we ask ourselves this question, men, are you working hard to fulfill the calling of God on your lives as the head of your home? Are you providing for your family, physically, spiritually, as you're able? Are you working hard to make sure that your home is a spiritual place by showing up with your time with the Lord? Are you prioritizing worship for your family or is everything else under the sun more important? You cannot tell your family God's the most important thing and live like everything else is more important. It will not work. Ultimately, those in your family will see you to be a charlatan. You can't do it. Pastor Jack is fond of saying this to us men, and I hope, you, I hope you put this to heart. More is caught than taught. You can sit down and blah, blah, blah all day long. But what's going to happen is that your wife and kids are looking at you to see who you are, how you live. And when they see who you are and how you live, then it becomes easy for them to fall into their roles, right? Well, it's easy for a wife to help a man that wants to lead his family into all godliness, isn't it? We begin to see that. Wives, are you assisting your husband as he tries to fulfill the overall mission of the family 
by supporting him? Or are you running your own agenda? If it's a partnership where everybody has an agenda and we just kind of come back together for fun and vacation and kids and what, we're not getting anywhere. Are you helping the family in that way? You know, what's funny is that the scripture reminds us that two are better than one. Solomon said that in Ecclesiastes. As we help each other fulfill the calling of God on our lives, we are better together, for sure. Marriage is worth it. It's worth the work. It's worth the effort. It's worth the temporary frustrations that you go through as you try to figure all of this out. If you don't have a family that you like right now, that's your fault. Don't look at the other person or the children. Start with you. Are you fulfilling the role that God has given you to fulfill in the family? You know, one of the things that I'm just absolutely certain of in the coming days is that great families are going to be one of the greatest witnessing tools for the kingdom of God. Great families. Families who love each other, who are transparent with their faults, who don't try to make it like it's some kind of Pollyanna thing, but can look at someone and say, I've married this person, I love them, I'm fulfilling the role of God in my life, in my marriage, as a parent, maybe if I have children, if not, just husband to wife, wife to husband, all those things. Because the world doesn't understand this. They can't imagine it. The sad part is, is when believers can't. We're missing an opportunity. Talk about engaging the culture. And what we're going to see next week is how marriage is actually a picture of something bigger for us. If you don't understand that marriage is meant to model something, you don't know why you're married. Marriage was meant to model Christ and his relationship to the church. We're going to see that next week. We're going to understand why would God, why would God even do this? So as we kind of finish up here today, are you fulfilling the call of God on your life as a husband, as a wife, in your role in the family? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. Anytime we preach about something like this, one of the things that happens is that there's always some, something in us that says, well, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's the way that it's supposed to be or not. And what I would just question you on that is, is to say, well, don't trust me on it. Go to the scripture. Are you fulfilling the role that God has divinely given you as a husband, as a wife, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather? And if you're not... Today's a great day to determine to build your family on godly principles. I want to pray for us and pray for our families. Father, you've authored all of creation. You designed the family, so it must be good. 
And Father, in our frailties and our weaknesses, our flaws, we recognize that there are probably things even this morning that you might be speaking to each one of us about in our role in the family. Father, help us to be good husbands, good wives, mothers and fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, children, as we seek to model families for the world to see, but Lord, also as we seek to accomplish the calling on our lives that you've given us. Father, there are some people in the room, no doubt, who aren't living in the calling of their lives. Maybe they've asked the question about the vocational calling and spent all of their time there and they've missed the calling that you've given us in the role in the family. Father, would you help us to see right now what you want us to be as men and women in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.